Hey everyone, I'm Cappy and you're listening to Beyond the Plate. This is a podcast where we sit down with the world's culinary elite to explore their journey into the food industry and the social impact they have made in their community. Today's guest is Chef Vivian Howard. This episode is made possible with the help of our friends at Imperfect Foods. All right, everyone, if you know me and or follow me on social media, you know that I love Imperfect Foods. Thanks to them, they're offering you, the Beyond the Plate listeners, 30% off your first box order if you enter the code Beyond the Plate at sign up. Real talk here, everybody. 40% of the food produced in the United States goes uneaten. It goes to waste. So where does Imperfect Foods come in? They're an online grocer. They're on a mission to eliminate food waste and build a better food system for everyone. And they're well on their way to doing that. They source imperfect groceries, including ugly produce, surplus food. They buy directly from farmers, growers, food purveyors, and they deliver these goods directly to your door through a customizable subscription service. It's up to 30% cheaper than many grocery stores. Since they launched in 2015, Imperfect Foods has recovered 139 million pounds of food, and they've donated over 5.7 million pounds of food to food banks and nonprofits fighting hunger. Come on, everybody. If that's not reason enough to get behind a company, I've been getting Imperfect Foods nearly every single week this year. I customize my box depending on what I know I have the following week. I always put fresh fruits and vegetables in there for my twin toddlers. It gives me a chance to feed them fresh, good quality produce and to test some new stuff here and there. I do have some favorites, which I'll share as we get going throughout the season. To learn more about Imperfect Foods, please visit imperfectfoods.com and follow them on social media at Imperfect Foods. Again, only for our Beyond the Plate listeners, for 30% off your first box order, enter code Beyond the Plate at sign up. Imperfect Foods, we thank you. Today's guest is a mom, wife, daughter, cook author, and TV personality from Deep Run, North Carolina. Vivian Howard is a super talented chef. She's an incredible writer. If you have not checked out either of her two books, I highly encourage you to do so. Her writing is her voice and her voice is her writing. And you'll see what I mean if and when you experience her writing. Um, Day in and day out, Vivian shines a light on the food and the culture of Eastern North Carolina, which seems to be a super special place. I hope to get out there one day soon. We hear some great stories from Vivian. We hear stories from local farmers that we touch upon. She hits upon personal stories and ups and downs, as well as on the business side and how she overcomes those obstacles. Most of all, we hit upon, as we always do, how Vivian gives back in her community. Vivian is the chef and owner of a few restaurants, most notably Chef and the Farmer. She also has Handy and Hot in Charleston. She was named a semi-finalist four times in a row for James Beard Foundation Best Chef Southeast. She won a James Beard Foundation Award for Best Television Personality. She's hosted multiple seasons of the PBS show A Chef's Life, and she has another series called Somewhere South. Her book, Deep Run Roots, Stories and Recipes from My Corner of the South, won four IACP awards. That's four International Association of Culinary Professional Awards. Amazing. Her new book, which we talk about, it's called This Will Make It Taste Good. And I suspect it too is on its way to winning some awards. All right, everyone, before we get going, I do want to mention we have some merch available for you. If you go to beyondtheplatemerch.com, we have some t-shirts and sweatshirts and different kinds of hats. So with that, please enjoy this episode as we go Beyond the Plate with Chef Vivian Howard. Hey, Chef, I want to do a quick audio test to adjust my levels. Can you name 10 pies for me while I do that? Pies? Oh, Lord. Okay, that's like, I like that. Chocolate chess, lemon meringue, uh, pecan... Uh, buttermilk pie, uh, apple pie. Awesome. That works. Thank you. Okay. (laughs) All right. So we have something in common. Boy, girl, twins. Oh, wow. Mine just turned two. So I think they're a little younger than yours, but who's running the show over there for you? Well, 
mine are not. So they are most definitely running it, but you're, you're in the thick of it right now. I am. I am in the thick of it. But as people say, I'm like, you know, it's kind of easy for us now because they don't know what's going on in the world, which is okay for us right now. <laughs> I'll tell you what's been really cool during COVID is, you know, boy, girl, twins. I, I don't know if you'll find this, but like the, the connection is not like identical twins. It's more like a brother and sister that you've spent every minute with. And, you know, they have different interests and uh, that sort of thing. But they've always, anyway, during COVID, they have, because they've only had each other, they have just come to love spending time together and, and making each other laugh. And yeah, so it's been really beautiful. And I think it's, it's reshaped their relationship and it makes me happy. That's so great. Okay, I'm going back to writing. I feel like your writing voice is your is your voice in general. So my question is, where do you find inspiration in your writing? You're right. My, my writing voice is definitely my speaking voice. And when I'm writing, I imagine talking to someone and, you know, how would I, if I were like on my best game, you know, if I were, you know, just killing it, in the conversation, how would I tell that story to that person or explain that technique to that person? How do you get in your writing zone? Like, do you ever feel like you can like bust out some writing and then other times there's like, do you have like a writer's block? Pretty much if I sit down to do it, I can do it, but it's about, it's about actually sitting down and, you know, all the stars have to align and I have to have, you know, the right blanket and the right, you know, amount of water in my cup. I don't know, you know, so there are a lot of a lot of things that have to and I I write mostly in the morning, but which has totally changed. I wrote all of Deep Run Roots after 5 p.m. But this book, just my life is different and the only way I could make it happen was to get up at five. And I found like, wow, I'm so clear at this hour and it's, it's so quiet and no one's sending me emails and there's no distractions. And so I'm like, I get, I've always heard people say they do their best writing in the morning, but I never bought that before now. That's interesting. That's how I was. I was a late night person and my wife is an early morning person, but I can't imagine doing it that early, but maybe I should give it a shot like you. so take us back to deep run north carolina i want to hear about like the early 80s like on the farm in the kitchen at the dinner table i want to hear like little vivian howard growing up well i was the uh, fourth girl in a family of parents who really wanted a boy and i was much younger than all of my sisters, nine years younger than the sister closest to my age. And so I was really precocious and I was really always, I was the life of the party and everyone's entertainer. And there's actually a, a, an essay in the book that's my favorite, I think, and it's attached to the people pleaser party dip. And um, it's, it's about me as a kid, at least the first part of it is, and how I used to, my family, we always had the stories on. That's what we call the soap operas. And the young and the restless and the guiding light were really the soundtrack of my childhood. And uh, there was this character on the young and the restless called Nikki and Nikki uh, was a stripper. And I would dress up in my mom's like robes and high heels and tiara and strip for the family. And that's like one of my first memories of like, performing and just making people laugh. And yeah, so there was a lot of that going on. And then, you know, I remember, you know, third and fourth grade Vivian, I I had learned that I had this kind of storytelling or writing. I don't know if you'd call it writing, but I got a lot of praise at school for, you know, my, my writing. And so I started, I used that at home, you know, when I would get in trouble or I would, you know, annoy one of my sisters. I would like go to my room and write an account of what had happened um, from my perspective, which was always altered and meant to be, you know, 
meant to change the tone in the house. And then I would like stomp out and throw the little story on the, on the kitchen table and go outside. And then when I came in, everybody, you know, I was, I was the, you know, everybody was laughing and and happy and I had changed the mood. So those are things I remember about my childhood. Do you remember like the first, like you, the first time you wrote about food or it contained food in a writing? Were you young? You know, the Christmas of my fourth grade year, my Uncle Bonk lost his tooth in, in a sausage biscuit on Christmas morning. And, and, and he just pulled the tooth out of the sausage and then continued eating. And, and I was so struck by that. I wrote a little story about it. And I don't know if you call that writing about food or not. <laughs> but No, you know, it's funny because food was like my family. We're, we're a family who loves to eat. My mom never really, uh, she, cooking was a burden for her. And so I didn't think about food as something special or uh, something to be exalted necessarily as a kid. It's not that those... It's not that it wasn't valuable. It's just not something that we really talked about. We didn't explore other food cultures. We ate kind of a basic country person's diet. Lots of soft vegetables, um, lots of overcooked meat. So your mom did the cooking? Mostly. And my older sister, Lorraine, had a penchant for baking. But I was pretty much always like weight was a big issue in my house. My mom's very petite, very slender. My sisters and I are shaped much more like our dad. And so there was a lot of dieting. That's really my first like real food memories. I mean, I have some food memories that I write about in Deep Run Roots, but you know, food for me as a tween and teen was, you know, something to be measured. Interesting. And you were your you grew up on a farm or your parents? Yes. My, I grew up on a tobacco farm, but we had a big garden in the back that actually spanned the backyard of our house and my grandparents' house. And I remember that uh, when I was really young, but I would say by the time I was in third grade or so, that was done away with. My grandfather passed away and my mom did a lot like what a lot of women were doing at that time. You know, like convenience foods were, you know, just becoming all the rage. We got a microwave. My mom took a class on how to cook dinner in the microwave. And, you know, that was, that was what was in fashion then. And so she was very much, you know, um, looking to what other women were doing. And what did you want to be when you grew up? Um, I, I wanted to be something. I, I always had a hard time figuring out what that was. Um, when I was in college, I decided I wanted to be a journalist and I had an internship at CBS Sunday morning and I loved the style of storytelling they did there. And I, that was, that would have been my, my dream job that or like what Katie Couric did. Although I'm glad I didn't end up doing that. (laughs) Okay. So was there a moment that made you realize that you wanted to be a chef? I knew you used writing like as a... Yeah. So I I worked in restaurants all during college. And uh, eventually in New York, I started waiting tables and... College was NC State? Uh-huh. Okay. And then out to New York. Got it. And I, um, I started waiting tables in this restaurant called Voyage. And this was like 2001. And the... Sh- the, the Chef's name was Scott Barton, and the the concept for the restaurant was Southern food via Africa. And that's something like we talk about a lot now, but like back in 2001, that was like not on the tip of anyone's tongue. And so it was, it was way ahead of its time. And I was on the opening, you know, wait staff. And so we had like a very intensive uh, training and the chef like told all these stories about the history behind these dishes and the ingredients and why they mattered. And I was just like, whoa, this is amazing. Like I, I had gone, I had studied abroad in, um, in Argentina uh, one semester during college and had a really hard time there. I was hit by a car and I, um, I, I just, I, I, I was not 
hitting on much. And we had to do this independent study and I decided to do it on the food culture of Argentina. And that was the first time I'd ever like looked at food as a subject. And the only reason I did was because I loved the food there so much. And so I I learned a lot about the food culture of Argentina, but never thought about the food culture of the American South. And, you know, I go to New York, work in this restaurant, see, you know, hear these stories and become, you know, really fascinated by food for, I guess, the second time. And so I started working in the kitchen there before my shift on the floor. And I just, I found that I was like good at it. It was, I liked making stuff and I really liked the camaraderie of the kitchen. And it was a hell of a lot easier to get a job cooking than it was to get a job writing. So I decided I would just keep doing it in hopes of turning that into some kind of a career as a food writer. Hmm. And you hadn't really cooked before that? No. I mean, I had, you know, cooked for myself and in all the houses I lived in in college, I was the person who cooked. But beyond that, no. Got it. And what did you know? I mean, did your did you watch did, when you were younger, younger, did you watch your mom in the kitchen or did she teach you anything or did she just get what she needed to get done done because she, she didn't love it? The third Uh, and, you know, because I didn't see her like, you know, loving it, I certainly wasn't drawn to it. And I think a lot of country, uh, like rural people who grew up on farms and like grew their own food. And, you know, that was really their job feeding their family, like kids in the kitchen were kind of in the way. What about now for your kids? Do, do they like to cook? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the thing that is frustrating is that they want to cook what they want to cook. And I just want it to be like the things you see on TV or you read about where, you know, they just come in and are curious about what you're doing. What do they want to cook? They want to make like uh, cookies and and cakes and they they want to, you know, um, work at the stove, but they don't want to, you know, learn how to use a knife. You know, it's just, they're not all in. Got it. Okay. So, um, back to New York voyage, you meet your future husband there, which I digress because he's from Chicago. Yes. Where in Chicago? I'm, I'm from, I'm here. I'm based in Chicago, but I'm also from Chicago. So when I saw that, I was like, yes. So the North Shore. Yeah. And when I met him, his mother was living in Lincoln Park. So I think they lived kind of, they lived in the suburbs and then she moved into the city and he went to, his high school was Northbrook. Glenbrook North or Glenbrook South? Oh, Glen, Glenbrook North. My brother owns a small restaurant there and I went to the neighboring high school in Deerfield. I had this weird feeling. I'm like... Did you play basketball? I did not, but I wonder, he went to the same high school as Chris Collins. Yes, I've heard him talk about him. That's so funny. Who's now, who went on to play at Duke and coached at Duke and now is a coach at Northwestern. Yes, and Ben also went to Northwestern. Oh, there you go. So he must, have you heard him talk about Buffalo Joe's uh, chicken wings at all or no? Yes. (laughs) Amazing. I knew there was a connection here. Small world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so New York, you, I'm going to say famously, ran a soup delivery business out of your Harlem apartment. Yes. What sort of soups did you make? Well, I every Sunday I came up with a little menu. I always had chili. You know, I, I've gotten much more creative over the years. The the soup business is called Viv's Kitchen. And <laughs> my chili was called Chili Con Carne. And I made um, little Cheez-Its to go with it, which I think is what people got really excited about. And then I always had a, a vegetarian soup and then one other soup. And they, they changed every week. And this was while you were working at Voyage? Um, I was at this point working at Spice Market. Okay, another a great restaurant. Did you have a favorite soup? And are there any soups that like make an appearance at Chef and the Farmer or any of the other places? Yeah, I mean, I love a like a proper cream of chicken soup with some really nice like saltines crumbled on top. And so I, I loved to make like decadent 
soups. So at one point, uh, I guess it was before or near opening Chef and the Farmer, you had said you, you were naive, but determined. What was your hope in opening that restaurant? I hoped that we would be able to bring some life back to this place, you know, where I grew up. And I mean, I left when I was 14 and, and things were bustling. And, and then when I came back, it was like all, you know, tobacco, the tobacco economy was gone. Textiles were gone. Everybody was like downtrodden and, you know, apologizing for still being there. And I, I wanted to, I wanted to feel pride around where I lived and I wanted, you know, people to grow stuff again, you know, but I ultimately, I didn't think that I was going to stay here forever. Yeah. I thought that we would just kind of get this started and well, I, I think I probably just didn't think that much about it because I couldn't resign myself to just running a restaurant in Kinston. Are you happy or content with where it is today? Uh, COVID aside, I should say, and everything that everyone has dealt with. And yeah. I mean, I'm, I like once, you know, when we got here, I realized, well, actually, you know, when I had children and in the time leading up to that, like I got to know my parents as human beings and served a purpose other than just, you know, having me and I've become so grateful to, to live around my family. I'm, I'm very content here. I mean, I was more content before all of this election stuff and, and you have to like look at who your neighbors are and, you know, parts of living here right now feel really lonely, but I would say that I'm fulfilled in my career and feel a real connection to this place. So yeah, how do you define success? I don't know. I, I think that feeling really good about what you've done, even if other people, you know, maybe don't respond to it in the way that, that you, that you do. This book has really been, uh, you know, every, every milestone you have in your career, like you understand some other type of success or failure, right? So for me, I've done a lot of different things and experienced a lot of both. And in this, you know, Deep Run Roots, I remember when I was writing it, I thought, you know what? I don't care what anybody thinks about this because I know I, I gave this everything I've got and I know it's good. And I've never felt that way about cooking or anything, but I, I like knew that about that book. And then it came out and everybody did love it. And so that felt successful. And then this book, I very much felt the same. If people don't like this book or don't get this book, I know it's good. And, and the response to it has been good, but certainly different than Deep Run Roots. And I still feel a lot of success around it. Like I believe in it and I feel like I gave it everything that I had and that it's really great. And so that feels successful too, but in a different way than before. So I, that was a very long way to try and answer your question that I clearly don't know the answer to. That's fantastic. So do you consider yourself a success? Yeah, in some, in some aspects of my life. Yeah. What, is there something you haven't accomplished or done that you like want to do? Yeah, lots of things. I would like to write something that is not about myself. That's not about me. <laughs> I'd love to write for a, a newspaper. I know that sounds stupid. I think I'd like to be taken seriously as a writer. And, and there are certain, you know, benchmarks that I think prove that. And so I would like to pursue those. Okay, so this is interesting. So you, so Chef and the Farmer, make, it makes modern interpretations of traditional Southern dishes. A lot of them, you know, from family members of Eastern North Carolina community. And I found this extremely fascinating you had said one thing you dislike about modern media in general is that our culture is very young person, new ideas driven. And you don't think people call on the wisdom of older folks very much to learn from them. So I'm curious, what wisdom did your elders teach you that you hope to pass on to your kids? You know, I think that they've taught me how to treat people, how to put family first, 
how to care about the place that you live, how to take care of the things you have, how to not take any opportunities for granted. And I think above all, like my work ethic. Hey everyone, pardon the brief interruption here, but I want to give a shout out to our great partners over at Keurig. They have a new limited edition love blend, which is a collection of three craft roasted blends co-created in collaboration with five local roasters across America. Some people call me a coffee snob, but in all honesty, I just like a good cup of coffee made by people who care about their craft. And that's just what Keurig did with this collaboration. So convenience aside with Keurig, this is great quality coffee and you can really taste that care that's gone into this project. By the way, check out this really awesome video they made about the roasters that they partnered with. If you go to keurig.com backslash love blend, you can see it there. Also, this limited edition love blend, when you order it, proceeds from your purchase go back to support the five roasters that came together to create them. Talk about supporting local. Nice work, Keurig. Also, these K-Cup pods are recyclable. Check locally as they are not recyclable in all communities. To learn more about the limited edition Keurig love blend and their five roasters, and to order product, holiday gifts anyone, please visit keurig.com backslash love blend and follow them on social media at Keurig. Keurig, we thank you. Okay, this next segment is called What Would Curtis Smith from T.C. Smith Produce... I was like, how do you know Curtis? (laughs) Is it What Would Curtis Smith from T.C. Smith Produce say about Chef Vivian Howard? That's the name of this segment. Ready? Curtis says she's done a tremendous amount for the culture and the way we do things in Eastern North Carolina. She's promoted ENC very well, and we're all very proud of her in our area. She taught me different ways to prepare traditional ENC dishes with a twist. She's done some things to dishes that are traditional to the area, but she's tweaked them and ramped them up. What? That, that man is a great man. Yeah, he is. <laughs> any, any secrets or dishes or an example of a twist Curtis may be talking about on a, on a, di- on a traditional dish? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think... For one, you know, collards are kind of ubiquitous here and only understood one way. And I've done a lot of different things for with collards over the years. And but the thing that Curtis is probably talking about would be like the fried collard chips that, you know, end up on almost every table at Chef and the Farmer. And there's a version of them in the book, the fried dollar bills. And also, you know, fish stew. I've done several riffs on that and fish stew here is potatoes and onions and something like red drum or sheep's head. But what makes it Eastern North Carolina is that we finish it with hard boiled eggs. Like we boil the eggs in the broth. And so I've done that with, you know, it's a very rustic dish and I've done it, you know, with olive oil poached, you know, flounder and quail eggs, like 63 degree quail eggs. So like that kind of thing is probably what he's thinking about. I have to ask any uh, riffs on pimento cheese. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think I've got a good one in the book. That's what I'm currently serving at the restaurant and at Handy and Hot. And it's got something that I used to call spice pecans chopped into it. But in the book, I call it V's nuts. <laughs> and, <laughs> Love it. and it gives it, um, you know, I think we, unless you've had a lot of pimento cheese, when you hear pimento cheese, you think it's going to have some kind of spiciness to it, but it often does not. And so the, these nuts give it like both like a crunchy texture and like a hint of spice and sweetness. I know what I'm making later on tonight. Yeah. Okay. Can we do, you mentioned Handy and Hot, which looks so good. But can we do like a little virtual restaurant crawl, like taking me through all your restaurants. And if I had to get one dish at each one, like where am I? Tell me where to start and what to get. And let's work our way through the Howard Restaurant Empire. Well, I have recently taken two restaurants, Chef and the Farmer and the Boiler Room, and kind of not merged them into one, but I closed the Boiler Room because I, for a long time, have 
felt the strain of running two restaurants next to each other in a very small town. And so I've used COVID as an opportunity to streamline things. So Chef and the Farmer is is very different than it was, you know, eight months ago. So at Chef and the Farmer, I would get the twice-baked sweet potato that has tahini and sorghum and coconut oil and then it's stuffed back into the the shell of the sweet potato and it's it's crumbled with sesame what's in the book is quirky furky but it's uh, a take on furikake and i would also get the applejack which is a fried apple hand pie that is a quintessential eastern north carolina like sweet snack and i would this time of year i would definitely get the fish stew because that's that's fall in eastern north carolina and very specific to this place so then we would go to benny's in wilmington and i would start with the chicken parm which is not really chicken parm at all but it's like a, a breaded cutlet of chicken that is tossed, that sits on a puddle of stracciatella, and it's kind of drizzled slash drenched in hot honey and pickled peppers. So it looks like chicken parm, but it it tastes like a riff on, you know, fried chicken with honey. Yum. And then I would get our uh, Kevin McAllister pizza which is a white, uh, Kevin McAllister add pepperoni. That's my daughter's order. Uh, so it's a, a, a white pizza with the, the pepperoni that curls up into a cup when you cook it. So with that pepperoni and also drizzled in this hot honey that I'm just a big fan of, I guess. Wait, 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 wait. Kevin McAllister, like Home Alone, Kevin McAllister? Yeah, yeah. You know, he he gets left because of the cheese pizza. Oh my gosh, do I love this. Um, (laughs) Are you aware that the Home Alone house is not far from where your husband grew up? I did know that. Okay, good. I'm just making sure. (laughs) There's not much uh, Chicago... Uh, trivia that I don't know. I also know that he went to the high school where Ferris Bueller was filmed. Yep, yep, yep. There you go. Amazing. Okay. <laughs> okay, now we've had pizza, the little pepperoni cups, add pepperoni. That's your daughter's order. Okay, now we're moving on. And then I would head down to Charleston and get... We're we're a biscuit and ham pie shop in Charleston, and I have a very specific... Uh, scripture when it comes to biscuits. Like I'm just not a fan of egg on a biscuit or like fried chicken on a biscuit. I think a biscuit, everything inside a biscuit should be there to service the biscuit and highlight the biscuit. And I think we've gotten carried away with the things that we put in between biscuits. So in, in Eastern North Carolina, we always have, you know, a piece of cured pork generally, and then something sweet to balance it. So we have a country ham apple preserve and cheddar biscuit at Handy and Hot. And that is one of my favorites. So I would get that. And then I would also get an air dried sausage and grape mustard biscuit. We ship the air dried sausage from Eastern North Carolina because we're really the only place that does it. And that's like my Christmas morning breakfast is that we've always had is sausage biscuits with grape jelly and mustard, which I make a more like sophisticated version of that. But yeah, that sounds so good. Wow. Um, I'm hungry. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Okay. So you, you had mentioned closing slash merging boiler room into chef and the farmer, which I'm guessing that took a lot of call it courage, thought, you know, talking out, is there a moment after you started all this in Eastern North Carolina and beyond that you ever wanted to throw in the towel? Oh my God. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, first of all, I'm not doing any of this by myself. And so there have been a lot of compromises along the way made by my husband and me. And, you know, I've always kind of tried to continue to push this you know, storyteller possibility. So that's always been the thing that I've wanted. And my husband, you know, wanted more restaurants. And I and I've always kind of pushed against that. And so the boiler room, you know, was a part of that. And when things started with the show, things got so crazy and moved so fast that 
you know, for several years, I really just didn't stop to take, you know, a look at what, what path our train was on now and, and if it was going where I wanted. And so that has felt like a lot of times, like I want to throw in the towel, but the more damp the towel gets, the harder it is to, to throw it in, you know? it feels like failure. You know, I've been thinking a lot about recently, like, do I want to be on TV? Do I enjoy being on TV or am I doing it? Because if I don't do it, it feels like I'm, I I failed at it to people. How do you push through? I, well, you know, a lot of people depend on me. And so (laughs) I just, um, I, you know, as I said earlier, like I have, I was raised to just take every opportunity and make the most of it. So I have felt like for a long time that I won't always have all these opportunities and I won't always have this degree of drive. And so as long as I have it, I should just keep pushing. And so that's what I've been doing. Do you ever shut off from work like at the end of a night? Yes, I I definitely do. Um, But when you're a business owner, you can't really, but I'd like to be able to do that. (laughs) <laughs> what do you do for fun? I love plants. I I have like about 30 orchids that I have rescued from office buildings and doctor's offices for over the years. And my house is like a little jungle. So I like to care for my plants. I like cooking at home, oddly enough. I love watching dance shows with my kids, like World of Dance or So You Think You Can Dance. I love Um, I have a very close group of friends and uh, I love talking about the world and future projects with them. All right, let's get into this deliciousness that is, this will make it taste good. We stated a little while ago that you started, you know, working in restaurant kitchens because you wanted to turn that experience into a career in, in food writing. So you have this beautiful book, as I mentioned earlier, this will make it taste good, a new path to simple cooking. And you said, I wrote this book to inspire you and I promise it will change the way you cook. You also said this pain in the ass of a book saved your business as well as your sanity. So explain this all to us. Yeah. You know, I got a deal when I signed the deal to write Deep Run Roots. It was actually a two book deal. And I was, you know, just really naive and excited, honestly, at that moment, because, you know, I'd always wanted to do something like this. And I thought, you know, after I write the first book, it'll be so easy to figure out what the second's going to be. But I didn't, I didn't have, I didn't understand that, you know, after the first book, what the second book can be is, is a little bit predetermined. And so I wrote all these, I wrote like three different proposals for three different books. One of them was going to be a, a really simple book because for the first year after Deep Run Roots came out, I woke up every morning and the first thing I did was read the new Amazon reviews on the book. And I, one of the trends that I saw over time was people saying that the recipes were too complicated and that they wanted something more simple. And so I was like, you know, come hell or high water, the second book is going to be simple. So I started writing a table of contents and fleshing out recipes for that book. And I was just so bored. Like it was fine, but it didn't really represent the way that there was none of me in it. And the last chapter in that book was called, this will make it taste good. And it was like, basically, if you want to make these recipes and the rest of this book taste really good and you want to have some fun with it, then make this stuff. And this was after I had already written a proposal for a cookbook called Pleasantly Plump, which was going to be a, a book about a cookbook about body image. And my editor did not like that idea. And we fought for literally months about it. In the end, he said that a cookbook about body image sounds like a pool party about drowning. And so I had to give him that. Eventually, I decided that I would flip the simple book on its head and write a whole book about the chapter, This Will Make It Taste Good. And when I had that thought, I had been Mike, my editor, had told me no so many other times that I just flippantly suggested this. And and because I didn't want to put the work in to write a pr- another proposal that was going to get, you know, poo-pooed. And he, he was into the idea. And that's how it came to be. But all the, the creativity around like what it is, 
just kind of developed along the way. So for the listener who is listening to this podcast episode on their device that is now going over to Amazon and putting in the search bar, Vivian Howard, this will make it taste good. Tell them what they're getting in this book. So This Will Make It Taste Good is um, a book that's all about things that I call like flavor heroes. I guess you could call them building blocks, but they're recipes in themselves that I make that I then use to make really simple food exciting. It's the way that I've long cooked in my restaurant, Chef and the Farmer. And when I stopped cooking in my restaurant so much, I started stealing these condiments, these sauces, uh, these spice rubs and bringing them home with me. And I found that I really relied on them to cook at home. So there's 10 chapters. Each chapter is about a flavor hero. There's a lot of narrative, a lot of storytelling. I'm at the front of every chapter. I'm actually dressed up like the personality of the flavor hero. They have names like Little Green Dress, Citrus Shrine, Can Do Kraut, Sweet Potential, Community Organizer, Red Weapons. And the names, you know, really... Uh, personify what they do in in recipes. This is like, I just want to add that, like it's very real, like this book. It's not like you sat down and you're like, let's do a book with 10 condiments that everyone can use and just show them how they can use pesto or red sauce or hot sauce. It's like, it really is much deeper. And I, I really urge people to check this out, to read the story. It's It's read the stories about all of these chapters, not to mention you're going to get very hungry uh, looking at all this, which was interesting because you you kind of just answered. I was going to ask a question because in the book, you said you opened up your pantry and revealed some of these secrets that you use at home. And now I was going to say now more than ever, we are home. So I was going to ask, is there a difference in your cooking style when you're when you're home versus at the restaurants? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I have two kids who are nine years old and... I hate washing dishes. So when I'm, you know, putting dinner together at home, I'm thinking about something that is going to suit everybody and that I can do in one or two pots or pans. And I'm always trying to work something green in, something with fiber in, something, you know, that has protein. So, you know, I'm I'm far more practical when I'm cooking at home than I am cooking in the restaurant. Uh, I also live in, you know, rural eastern North Carolina and the supermarket with the most variety uh, within an hour and a half of my house is Walmart. And so I, at home, I very much like cook from, you know, the aisles of a, a basic supermarket. And I, this book, you know, I think definitely speaks to that. That's amazing. And we should mention, you, you've referenced Deep Run Roots quite a few times and everybody should know, you probably picked up on this, but this was um, Chef's first book and that book won four International Association of Culinary Professional Awards, IACP, which is incredible because you had mentioned you were reading reviews and all that. So I, I think everyone needs to know how how uh, extraordinary that book is. But uh, accol- you mentioned you read reviews. So accolades and awards aside, what's the best compliment to get from someone who who's bought your book? It made me laugh. It made me cry. It made me want to cook. And what I want for this book, I haven't gotten this compliment yet, but people haven't had it long enough. I want them, I want it I want someone to say, you know, it really gave me confidence to cook without recipes. That's awesome. I love that. And then, and so you mentioned you re- you read reviews for your book, but do you read reviews of your restaurants? Yeah. I mean, I think that's why I was so comfortable reading reviews for the book. Cause I mean, I've re- read reviews of the restaurants, reviews of myself, reviews of my book for years. And I think that's why, you know, I don't get all bent out of shape because I think if you read a lot of reviews, you see a lot of junk, but you also see 
trends and things, you know, if things pop up over and over, then there's generally, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. So there's something there that's bothering more than one person and it's happening, you know, more than once. And so that's why I read reviews. It's not not for the, the glowing remarks or the nasty comments, but just to see what is happening you know, over time. Okay. So all of our guests, um, on beyond the plate give back in different ways. It's one of the main reasons that we started the podcast was to share with listeners and quite frankly, business owners in general or anybody in general. And we hear from people outside of the culinary world too. It's to share what chefs do beyond the plate and outside of the kitchen. Cause I truly believe you all are way more than the food you you know, put on a plate and on the table. Given today's state of the world, there's even more ways uh, chefs are stepping up to give back, which is crazy to me. Do you, you know, thinking about what they're going through themselves and their businesses, because you all are getting crushed to an extent and trying to make do. But the way chefs are stepping up, is this surprising to you? I mean, in the same way that you just were like, you know, I can't believe it. Uh, yes, but at the same time, I mean, it's kind of what... I think it's in our DNA just because, you know, our work is, is about feeding people and we tend to be, we tend to like to keep our hands busy. So it, it is surprising and, and also not, you know, I think any person in the restaurant business right now could really very easily wallow in the pit of shit we find ourselves in, but uh, that's not what we do. Can you share with us some of the, I know you've done a lot of philanthropic work and giving back. Can you share some of that work that you've done? Yeah, well, I do a lot of work with the uh, Food Bank of Eastern North Carolina. We have so much, oddly enough, you know, we we are a, an agriculture region with a in, that's actually in many places, a food desert. So getting food to, to children, particularly during this time when they're often not going to school is a big focus of the food bank here. And we do this peanut butter drive because peanut butter is a, as long as you don't have a nut allergy, uh, is, is one of the best things that um, the food banks can see. I've done a number of t-shirt fundraisers, you know, like I realized that I had this this platform that would had the ability to to sell messages, if you will. And, you know, we have a lot of hurricanes here in Eastern North Carolina and, and businesses suffer and sometimes don't reopen. And we did this cool um, t-shirt f- fundraiser for a taco truck, Eduardo's taco truck on Ocracoke that was basically washed away after the last hurricane. And the t-shirt said one island under tacos. That was enough to to rebuild his, his truck. So, you know, I think chefs, we do a lot of philanthropic dinners and galas and events where we never really see what happens with our work. And I, I, I very much like to do things that I can that I can see and engage in, in my own backyard. And Eastern North Carolina is really, there are a lot of needs here. So there's a lot of work to be done. It's amazing. So the t-shirt related thing, is that something that you do on an ongoing basis as needed? And if so, where can we, do we follow, follow you on social or, or look on your newsletter? Yes. Follow me on social. And basically when, you know, the need arises. This is one of the ways that we brainstorm how to raise money without, you know, you don't even, social media can be really powerful. And with something like this, you don't even have to to leave home, essentially. So I want to give a moment for you to shed some light on an organization or a fund that you like to raise awareness for, and it could be one of the ones you just mentioned. Has someone or some organization impressed you or moved you recently? Um, well, you know, I, I'm a big believer in the food bank of Eastern North Carolina and food banks everywhere. You know, that they are, they're not new and elusive. They've been doing this work for a long time and they are connected to um, community institutions like church and schools and they have tentacles that you know reach all over the community with you know just regular citizens that participate and make the wheel go round and I've seen in recent years their ability to 
work with farmers and provide like fresh produce in the food bank offerings, which is like a great stride from a decade ago when everything was kind of canned. And so I really like to beat the drum of the food banks across our nation. Amazing. That's awesome. Thank you for that. Okay, let us do a quick speed round and then we'll close it out with a multi-part question. Okay. Question number one on the speed round. What did you have for dinner last night? I had macaroni and cheese and um, refried bean soup with smoked sausage. Ooh, yum. Name a smell in the kitchen you love. Sweet potatoes roasting. Name a smell in the kitchen you hate. The bottom of a burned pan. What pisses you off in the kitchen? People that don't clean up after themselves. What makes you happy in the kitchen? People who clean up after themselves. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) This is a multi-part question. And here it goes. You, I read something you had said, you are a first time. Well, let me read this as you. I'm a first time author whose young adult self dreamt of being a writer. I'm the mother of a twin boy and girl who once doubted her maternal instincts. I'm a chef who cooks for therapy I'm a lucky daughter who counts her parents among her friends. I'm a strong-willed wife who loves her husband but often struggles to work with him. And I'm a television personality who can't bear to look at herself in pictures. My greatest strengths are fearlessness, creativity, enthusiasm, and humor. My most frustrating weaknesses are patience, organization, and numbers. We never do a double speed around here, but this quote from you inspired me to do so. So um, can you tell me the first thing that comes to your mind about the last time in each of these scenarios? Here it goes. Tell me the last time you rocked it as a mom. Um, Last Sunday when uh, Flo and I did mother-daughter yoga. Tell me the last time you and your husband worked well together. Mm, Last night when we were cleaning up dishes. Nice. Tell me the last time cooking something frustrated you. Three weeks ago when I was trying to make a bean dip on the fly for my book event. And I was embarrassed because I I had landed in our Charleston kitchen and was making everything more difficult for the people working there. Last time you laughed with your parents or drank with your parents? Laughed with my mom just yesterday. Last time you looked at yourself in the mirror and liked what you saw? Uh, This morning. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Vivian, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. I, I mean everything I said about your book. I can't wait to dig in more. Your point of view on food is is pretty remarkable. And I, I've already told many people about your book that have bought it. And I can't wait to dig in more. Thanks for all you do to bring attention to, uh, to hunger across the country, especially in your neck of the woods there in eastern North Carolina. And I look forward to uh, other people getting to experience you via TV or your restaurant or your books in the future. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day and the rest of your week. Thanks again to Chef Vivian Howard. Find more on her at VivianHoward.com. To learn more about Food Bank of Central and Eastern North Carolina, go to foodbankcenc.org. Find me and keep up to date with this podcast across all social media platforms at On Cappy's Plate or go to beyondtheplatepodcast.com. Beyond the Plate is on all the socials at BT Plate Podcast. This episode was produced by myself, along with Ian Cohen, Joel Yetten, and Sean Petrosian. Thank you to Sarah McClellan Me for her digital media skills. Our music has been composed by Gold Ford. Find him at iGoldFord. As always, a special shout out to my wife, Katie. Please rate, review, and or subscribe to this podcast on your listening site of choice. Join us this Friday for another episode of Beyond the Drink, our companion podcast of Beyond the Plate, made possible with the help of our friends at Deep Eddie Vodka. Last week, you heard from Ben Potts of Unfiltered Hospitality in Miami. And this week, we hear from his co-founder, Guy Thank you for listening to Beyond the Plate. I'm Cappy. And remember, there are never too many cooks in the kitchen.